Welcome to the sixth Art Eater podcast. Really excited to be here today with our regular co-hosts, Sean and Andy. Say hi, fellas. Hello. Hello. Oh, man. Yeah, very, very excited for uh, today's podcast. Uh, so today we'll be talking about uh, Bayonetta and Vanquish, two modern classics by Platinum Games. Uh, they both just got a uh, HD re-release um, last week, I believe. Uh, HD, I mean by like, I, I think you can like play them in 4K if if, if you get them for for uh, the oh. the later. What what do they call the the PlayStation Plus and the Xbox? A uh, PlayStation Pro and what's the fancy Xbox? Um, X One. Xbox X, One, yeah. Xbox One. They also come with a anniversary theme for Xbox and PlayStation. Ah, nice. Okay. okay. Okay, get some little extras. Anyways, they're 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 excellent games. Uh, we we have a lot to talk about them. Uh, well, I've, you know, our backgrounds in art. We're gonna dive deep into the artistry behind the games, the uh, different cultural, social, and religious themes, um, and uh, you know, we'll also of course talk about the awesome gameplay um, found in each title and the lasting influence uh, that they've had on games uh, ever since. So um, yeah, yeah, uh, buckle up. Get a, get a drink. Um, yeah, get get ready. Uh, oh, and by the way, you can follow our podcast on Twitter. Uh, we release updates, uh, you know, on the podcast on Twitter at Art Eater Podcast on Twitter. So please follow along there. All right. Oh, and of course, um, today's podcast was not brought to you by the, the McRib. Uh, the McRib was invented in 1981. It's a boneless pork patty reconstituted into the shape of a bone-in rack of ribs. It's a fast food porky perfection slathered with a molasses sweet barbecue sauce. I, I love those things. Um, did you guys know that the McRib was based on technology developed by the U.S. Army to feed uh, troops in the field? Did you know that? That's amazing, right? <laughs> yep. Before it went to market, um, they hired a leading meat scientist named Dr. Roger Mandigo, and um, he developed a process called restructured meats, uh, which involved using salt to extract proteins from meat, uh, which could then be then used to sculpt meat <laughs> into more precise forms than previously possible. Um, that's that's how they were able to take the uh, the reconstitute the pork patty and reconstitute it into that uh, <laughs> that that rack of rib uh, shape. Yeah. Did, did you know that there is a website dedicated to finding the grib called McRib Locator? Oh, no, I didn't um, know that. that I, I, I think it's probably not relevant uh, until, like, usually it's it's to coordinate sightings when uh, McDonald's decides to come back out with the McRib. But oh, I yeah. enjoy that uh, someone built a location-based website to help people triangulate the locations of McRibs when they're out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it also is, came yeah. out at the same time as the Iran hostage crisis, and it seems to come out like whenever the U.S. is in a conflict or war in the Middle East. Mm, which is um, which is pretty much all the time too, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like I'm pretty sure like after Saddam was killed, the McRib came back. I remember that. I, I do remember that being a strange correlation on, on, on social media. Um, yeah. And I think after they killed Bin Laden, the McRib came back, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so because of the technology, is the the kind of the wave of it being available, is that just a marketing scheme, or does it have to do with the material to make it? 
some speculate it, it, it's actually correlated to the um, price fluctuations and the price of pork. So like whenever oh. the price of pork drops, they'll they'll bring it back. Well, the price of pork is never going to drop because China eats lots of pork. Yeah. Everyone will go crazy. That's true. Uh, even, uh, you know, Thailand, um, y you would think, you know, they're like the world's breadbasket, but they actually import pork because they consume so much of it. Okay. Oh, oh uh, two more fun facts about the McRib. One was that its creator was inducted into the Meat Hall of Fame in 2010. Yeah. So he secured his place in Meat Valhalla alongside like uh, Colonel Sanders and Dave Thomas. <laughs> and uh, the other uh, interesting fact is, um, the McRib and the McNugget were introduced, I think, in 1981. So the same technology used for the McRib also powers the McNugget. Oh, okay. That's they do have that similar texture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. I, I, I never thought about it till I. Yeah, very similar appeal. I, I love hearing the word technology adjacent to food. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. McRib, my one of my favorite robot foods. The currently okay. existing right. hamburger. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Let's get into it. Uh, Bayonetta. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's first talk about Bayonetta. Uh, it was uh, Bayonetta's, uh, you know, a game that put uh, platinum games on the map. Uh, it was directed by uh, Hideki Kamiya. So he was the original uh, director of uh, Devil May Cry. Um, so Bayonetta came out in 2009, I believe, uh, which was one year after Devil May Cry 4. And uh, after that, there was a pretty big lull for, um, you know, these stylish uh, action games. So, so uh, Bayonetta really is one of the defining stylish action games of, uh, of the last, last decade, at least. Yeah. Um, well, and Kamiya yeah. is a very stylish director, and he worked on Beautiful Joe and Okami, right? Which are oh, very heck, stylish yeah. games. Yeah, yes. like all of his games Beautiful are game. very different looking. Very different looking and very different playing too, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah like like after I I think um, he did he direct Devil May Cry two or three or I, I know he didn't direct four. I thought two was like made without the Devil May Cry one team. And then three was the team back. I'm not sure. I, I think he advised on the third one, uh, but he definitely didn't direct it. I don't know about the second one. Really has some range. He really like after making a essentially creating a new genre. Um, you know, he he just kept kept pioneering. <laughs> he didn't just well, stick to one thing. Uh, but then you know he eventually. Uh, go ahead. Could kind of say it's like. Castlevania Symphony of the Night, but 3D. Yes, actually, that that is uh, very much how I felt when I played the first uh, Devil May Cry. I was like, oh, this, this is the first 3D game where I'm having as much fun as like, uh, uh, you know, a, a classic 2D game. Like, I really feel in control of the action. Yeah, you, know? you have like a really good dashing attack and a variety of like just crazy screen just obliterating moves. Yeah, and just your your mobility options and crowd control options were, were crazy, and um, I think all all of that was really expanded upon with uh, Bayonetta. Like, do you, yeah. do you guys remember the opening to Bayonetta? Like, you, well, you, was you, that you, with the jet or the? No, 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 it's, no, a, no. it's a prop plane, <laughs> is what you're thinking. Oh, of. oh no, no, that's that's. Are, are you thinking of the prop plane in, in in Devil May Cry? No, no, there's a there's a, a prop plane uh, crash in in the prologue opening of Bayonetta for sure. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh man, yeah, a lot of overlapping ideas. Um, 
what, what I distinctly remember is the you're, you're, you're like on a clock tower, like church-like clock tower, like falling through the sky, and you're jumping across rubble and like fighting, you know, just a, a, a host of angels and pulling off like crazy moves. Um, and it oh. looks like super cinematic, but like you're just in full control of it. Oh, time. that's right. They actually don't really explain what's going on uh, for that. That's the the immediate intro. Yeah, they yeah just, yeah they just it just starts and you're right just like, wow, this is amazing. And then you're like, oh, I'm controlling this. Yeah, yeah. I, I just remember being blown away by um, one, like how great it looked, and then two, like, oh my god, like I'm in full control of this action. Like even though it's super stylish, it, it for the time it was like it was animated better than a lot of cutscenes, you know, but it, it was just so fluid and intuitive and, you know, just switching between like melee attacks and then like shooting people with your, both of your feet, you know, and like, just like changing like targets on the fly and like just precise platforming and like all, all in the first minute and it just drops you right into it, but it, it just feels good. Like it, well, and the animation isn't, in, in my opinion, just good. It's clear. Like despite all this, all the effects going on, it's very easy to tell what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's super legible. I, I, I think I, I recall reading that. I believe they figured out the core gameplay just using key poses. I, I think like I think they didn't bother like doing in betweens because they wanted everything to be super legible. Um, and and I think they really succeeded with that. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful game. Just the art direction, the the animation. Incredible, really fluid game. It's interesting about the <clears throat> sorry. It's really interesting about the the legibility as well. Is there's a number of effects where you have control of changing the camera angle to do what you need to do. Like I, I forget the name of it, but uh, there's a a way when you know where you can like use the stick, at least on the PlayStation, to spin and shoot, and it actually yeah, circles yeah. the camera closer into Bayonetta. So you can target for shooting better than you would when you're out when you're when the camera's pulled out for you to switch between melee enemies. It felt really good. Um, everything was just so fluid. Okay, um, so I, I'd like to talk a bit about the character uh, of uh, Bayonetta herself. I, I think she's actually one of the strongest characters in games recently. You know, like uh, games have gotten a lot more cinematic over the years, but there's not necessarily the slew of like super iconic, instantly recognizable characters that you know you have from like the 80s and 90s. But um, I, I think Bayonetta stands tall, like as one of those just really striking characters. Like you just kind of get so much about her just at a glance, and then you play the game, and you just keep getting more and more. Uh, it's a fantastic design. So actually, I, I remember before the game came out, um, they just had like a teaser, and I, I think they just showed off like little glimpses of the character. And I actually remember thinking. Right away, the first thing I got from it was I thought uh, she looked just like uh, uh, the the Bodhisattva Guan Yin from uh, you know from from Buddhism. Like she looked like uh, in in English sometimes they call her the the, the goddess of mercy, but um, uh, uh, Guan Yin uh, she's called Canon in Japanese. This is a um, very important figure in Buddhism. Uh, she's a, a bodhisattva, which is someone who's achieved enlightenment, but has decided to stay back in the uh, realm of the living to help other people achieve enlightenment. And um, yeah, this is a very prominent figure in Buddhist art. It's the it's typically beautiful woman uh, with long flowing black hair um, and a, a top knot 
uh, well, or it, not a knot. What do you call it? Like just a top, not a ponytail, but um, her, her hair is really, really similar to uh, Bayonetta's hair in the very first game. Um, and of course, she also has like typically has long flowing sleeves. Um, her overall silhouette is is really similar. And then she often has sort of a, a lotus theme, and um, there, there's like a little bit of like a flower and petal theme going on in, in Bayonetta's design. And then I, I even recall like some of the early art they released. Um, she she sits in a cross-legged position that's um, very very much associated with with Quan uh, Yin, with the Bodhisattva in, in Buddhist art. Yeah. But what do you think, Andy? Did you did you get that impression? Even like just her statue, uh, her stature, it made me think of uh, that Michelangelo statue, like La Pieta. When you have that like really massive Mary holding Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a a, a great of a Western art history. Um, you know, it's funny you point that out. Like a lot of people focus on uh, Jesus in in that statue, and and well, and Mary looks so motherly, and then people kind of like don't notice that she's absolutely massive um yeah, yeah she's I, like a towering figure in that statue i've never seen anyone like do a mock-up of well how tall is that mary statue yeah if if, if she stood up <laughs> and like spread her arm and you saw her full wingspan she she'd yeah she'd have the proportions of like an nba player yeah i could <laughs> definitely dunk yeah but- yeah, she's definitely dominant in the composition for it as well. I mean, you, you, you're right. You could even look at it and not realize that Jesus is in the statue if you weren't looking closely. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, I think um, so. Right away, like uh, Bay- Bayonetta is very striking. Like, she's like a powerful-looking uh, female <laughs> figure. Um, I, I think nowadays uh, she's gotten a lot more popular. As a character, she's even like in, in Smash Brothers, and uh, nowadays it's very easy to think, oh, you know, like really sexy, fun character. But um, do you guys remember? Like initially, her design was actually quite controversial. Um, you know, oh, yeah. rather than like, so now people might say like, oh, she's too sexy. But at the time, people, a lot of a lot of writers were like, she's not sexy enough. This is weird. Like, why is her head so small? Why yeah. why is she so tall? Like. I think people were, I don't know, it's almost like they were intimidated by the design. Like, it was so out of uh, the, the boundaries of what they were accustomed to. Well, people still had sexy girl magazines, right? Well, what do you mean? Uh, back then, yeah, like, 2009? Yeah, yeah. Do oh, you mean like, like, yeah. like FHM and um, yeah, well, yeah. The other ones, like the men's magazines? Yeah. I think they're all websites still. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, if, if you look at the measurements of like a, you know, average... Um, say like an average porn star in the in the west like she's gonna be short she's gonna be shorter than average right and then here you have bayonetta she's like i don't know like seven feet tall like 12 heads tall um yeah she's she's stylized in a way that uh typically you would associate more with with male characters um uh by by the way she was created by just to give you uh some some background she she was created by an artist named uh, maria shimazaki yeah um so she started her career um, actually at Capcom. Uh, first game that I could find her uh, credits for were um, Under the Skin, a really, really bizarre cell-shaded, um, I don't know how to describe this game. It, it was like, a, 
you, you control an alien and you go around and you annoy people in sort of a sandboxy environment, but it was level based. It, it was like a proto proto um, annoying goose game. Like you, yeah. you just go around bugging people. <laughs> it's it really yeah. bizarre. It's really bizarre. It was called Under the Skin. Um, okay. It did get a Western release, so if if you all want a really weird, <laughs> obscure. Uh, but well-crafted game. Um, like, look that up, Under the Skin. So she was a stage yeah. designer on that. Um, and then after that, uh, 2004, two years later, um, she was over at Clover, uh, which I think then was an offshoot of Capcom. And she was the character designer on Okami, which is, you know, legendary game. And that, that was, of course, directed by uh, Hideki Kamiya. Um, and, you know, Okami was this... Uh, not cell shaded, but more of like this brush shaded, like ukiyo-e shaded game. Um, drew on like a Japanese mythology. Uh, it was like an action. Would you say yeah. it was an RPG? Would it be safe to kind of Zelda like, right? Yeah. Yeah, it feels closer to an action game, but it's got elements of RPGs for sure. Yeah. But anyways, like beautiful game, another classic that we could probably spend a whole podcast on. Um, okay, and then uh, that same year, uh, Marie Shimazaki, she also got a special thanks in God Hand, another legendary game um, under Clover. Uh, and then a couple years later, uh, folks at Clover again split off entirely from Capcom, and uh, they formed uh, Platinum Games. And I believe that was when, um, again, working under director Hideki Kamiya, she was the main character designer on uh, Bayonetta, uh, which is what yeah. we're talking about today. And, uh, you know, I think her instructions were um, pretty vague. I, th I think they just said, uh, you know, she's like a witch, you know, strong character, and uh, she has to use four guns at once, uh, I think, which is how they came up with, like, the crazy... Uh, guns on her heels, and then, uh, you know, the dual wielding, which is reminiscent of Dante. It sounds like she actually had a lot of freedom uh, with that design. Yeah, I, I feel like I read an interview where, like, uh, the freedom was, was pretty high. Like, she just kind of pitched the idea, and it was a home run immediately. Yeah, yeah, like, her earliest sketch that they showed was pretty much the finished design. Like, um, you know, it had the hair in place. She, she called it a beehive, but... Um, I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was a pretty conscious reference to to Guan Ying. Like, uh, I, the, I mean, for the, I was gonna say the beehive was, I think, meant to also be uh, reminiscent of a witch hat as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, they yeah. mentioned that uh, they they didn't. I think they didn't want to use like a you know a generic witch hat. Uh, they wanted yeah. like a really striking hairstyle, right? Well, her hair is uh, her clothing. Right. That's right. As, as a witch, she controls her hair, and she uses her hair to yeah. form her own clothing. And, yeah. um, like, part of just the, the Guanyin statue design of, like, male and female Guanyin is uh, the hair just flows right into the shoulders, and then, like, there's a kind of loose clothing that just drapes over the body. Yeah. It's, um, I think if, if you grew up in a uh, Buddhist uh, culture, it, it, it would be a pretty easy comparison to make. It would be like, you know, if you see a figure that recalls the, the uh, Virgin Mary in Western art, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like pretty obvious. It's like how Johnny Depp looks like Jesus most of the time. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, just going back to how striking her character was. Um, so, you know, she she's 12 heads tall. She's proportioned like a Fist of the North Star character. Um, and I think this was because... Yeah. Uh, 
they were drawing very much on 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 fashion. Like she she has this like high fashion air to her, you know, like uh, fashion illustration uh, traditionally is really stylized and the the, the, the figures in, in fashion design um, at the conceptual phase, they tend to be like super leggy, like really, really tall. You know, again, because it's just stylish. Didn't Camilla have a thing for having fashionable characters as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Devil May Cry genre, they called it like a stylish action specifically, right? Um, e- even Dante was pretty flamboyant with like a red red trench coat, cowboy boots. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they actually did call it stylish action. I remember that now. Yeah. 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 And he, he had a cool he's, haircut. He used like blade, but red. <laughs> yeah. I, I've often heard the games also compared to other ones like what are called art house, like uh, No More Heroes and stuff like that. But I feel like that felt a little bit more contrived in terms of the style. And this one felt uh, stylish, not because it was trying too hard, but because it actually understood what the, the taste of the, the artists were and the team and whatnot. Well, I think No More Heroes is intentionally, like, very... Like, it rolls around in nerdiness for fun. Oh, yeah, it's it, <laughs> and, it's, um, it's like a toy box. So many different references in there, yeah. And then um, the, the main artist is, what, Yusuke Kazaki. He does all the Pokemon Go characters. Oh, yeah, that, that guy's a legend. Um, <laughs> we, we could go into a whole pad- podcast about that dude, too. Like, yeah. Uh, Okay, yeah. uh, for for the interest of time, I'm I'm gonna pull us back into um, uh, Bayonetta. Yeah, do you remember 2009 uh, when the game came out? Um, there was really strong reaction against the character, um, and I think to a modern audience, you might assume that it was like, oh, you know, it was a little too sexy or something. But there was actually more pushback about just like, yeah, she's like, oh, she's so weird looking. It's kind of like when you're in an art class and there's that one student who all they can say is just proportions they start it with i don't know if i like blank i don't know if i like these proportions yeah just a really really striking instantly memorable character um yeah, I, I seem I, to I, recall that the the uh the controversy as it were was it was weird because there were multiple camps that didn't really agree with each other but they didn't really oppose each other either like there's definitely a lot of just general um, kind of backlash in different ways. It was, it was like people didn't know what to think. The monster designs were really fun. The standard angel was kind of like the mass production Ava. Yeah, it did, did have that sort of weird um, animal quality to it. It, it looked like menacing. A, like a porpoise and a crow combined. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So mention, I, I really enjoyed... The, there's a lot of kind of Western religious influence in a lot of the enemy designs in a way that I don't think I had seen anyone do before. Like you're right, the standard angel or uh, there's like a dragon you face fairly early on in the game that has like its body is an upside down sculpted Western uh, bust face. Yeah. 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 This game had a crazy like, uh, like Baroque. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like uh, King Ghidorah shaped, and then they started yeah. like an upside down statue head. It, it, yeah, it, it felt like taking classical, like Baroque Catholic art, and then like giving it a high fashion twist by way of like uh, like kaiju films, like yeah, yeah, and and all that kind of came together in um, making these things feel really inhuman, which is actually like 
you know, kind of kind of accurate to the Bible, right? Like like angels weren't originally, uh, you know, just winged people. They were like these unknowable cosmic beings, right? Like a burning wheel with like like a the, bunch of wings and covered in eyes, right? Sean, yeah, you know yeah. much more about this. Than yeah, the, uh, the the Bible actually, in in terms of also Gnostic imagery, actually says very little, surprisingly little, about what angels actually look like. It identifies uh, the archangels, but but even then, it doesn't. People draw a lot of conclusions, but it really talks more about what they do. And you're right, like a lot of the things you're talking about, um, information, like that's kind of the imagery of revelations and whatnot. And actually, early on in Bayonetta, um, oh, I'm blanking. What's the what's the um, the armor character's name? The one that runs Gates of Hell. Oh, Rodan. Rodan, Rodan yeah. Rodan yeah. references pretty early on uh, revelations, and he he actually references it a number of times throughout the the game, but. Yeah, I actually really like that idea because, like, the angels tend to be more of the the extension of the Lord. You know, they're they're more of a yeah. force, uh, a force of uh, the divine rather than actual people. Uh, because, like, they're they weren't people that were alive, right? They're 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 just an extension of the holy. So, uh, yeah. I, I actually really liked that idea that the the default kind of angelic looking things were. We're very clearly not human, even though they're somewhat humanoid in terms of the way that they they move. Yeah, I I kind of feel like the precursor to these uh, angel enemies are like the supercomputer enemies in Fantasy Star. Like oh, yeah? they have a similar vibe, you know. Like here is the the mother brain who's uh, going to cleanse the world with these like you know clean beings of purity because they're machines. But then, um, it, 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 again, it played on, on on top of that imagery. Like, um, they have this shiny veneer, and then, like, you, you, you smash them apart, and then, like, inside, they're still, like, fleshy, right? So uh, another thing that I wanted to add, uh, going back to kind of some of the, the biblical things that they did here, is that uh, there are hierarchies in uh, the kind of the, the heavenly host, if you will. And this game actually does that. Like, every time you're introduced to a new class of angel, it has, like, a, you know a book come on and it tells yeah. you that you're, you're dealing with a new, uh, a new hierarchy level of angel. Uh, yeah. and you would have just thought that that was introducing you a new, new enemy, but it's actually pretty accurate to how it's described in biblical texts. Yeah. Wow. This is like angel power, right, right. principality, throne, kind of play Shin Megami Tensei again to brush up. Yeah. I, <laughs> I learned about those from uh, Bastard. The, the comic by Kazushi oh, yeah, Aguilar. Yeah. That book, that, that comic introduced me to like Milton and stuff. I, I remember I went to the library and um, I, I, I checked out uh, Paradise Lost and I like just forced myself to try to read it for hours. Like it was, it's pretty obtuse for, for a little kid. <laughs> Even now, I think I would struggle to really understand it. But what you should uh, look into if anyone listening is interested in this is there three hierarchies nine orders of angels so look up um the assumption of the virgin is one of the uh believe fourth or fifth century paintings that actually visualizes what uh granted it's it's very they make a lot of assumptions about kind of the shape of angels because obviously it's a uh yeah. an, an older uh a much older painting but in terms of thinking about the the way that the angelic hierarchy works uh at least from a from older uh, eastern christianity uh super interesting but it, once you learn about that you can actually see the references to the nine orders of angels in this game okay wow. so the the orders are they actually um 
in like actual canon biblical texts or was that something like added later i think there's there's different canons aren't there uh, the, the orders are often called uh, the choirs of angels, which is what, what is a more common way to hear it. Um, they are mentioned in the New Testament, and they're mentioned somewhat in Judaism. So it's, it's, it's a little newer, but um, it's worth noting that some of these things, what, what tends to happen is that uh, biblical scholars might have taken some base information that came out of the Bible and made it uh, a little bit more of a stretch. Like uh, there, I would say that the the actual canon on it, in terms of the orders, the, the the choirs of angels, are not considered biblical per se, but yeah, they do come from a place of uh, reference uh, across most of the New Testament in terms of Christianity. Yeah. Okay. I think um, the hierarchy changed like through the Middle Ages. Uh, I've read it's like around the fourth or fifth century they really got into like just classifying things to understand their world better and um mm. i remember there was like like some european scientist was like trying to figure out how small an angel could shrink and it was like a very serious study like can they fit on a pin head right right how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin yeah. so I, and i kind of wanted to to wrap that part of it up, the, the other piece of it uh, that is referenced directly in the game that I picked up on uh, being someone that was schooled in Catholicism early on is the spheres. So the third sphere, uh, second sphere, first sphere one. So you might often be aware of like archangels or seraphim, cherubim, whatever, but the spheres yeah. actually refer to the governing authority of the angels. So obviously... Yeah. Uh, Third tier, like, guides or messengers. So, in fact, for most of the game, that's who you're fighting is the third sphere. And then as you go yeah. up, uh, overall, the, the second sphere tend to be more uh, subject matter or they tend to be, like, more boss-like. And then, of course, the the ultimate is the first sphere, which is where you have the the archangels and uh, what are what are mostly well-documented in Christian mythology. Yeah. Uh, or I don't know if mythology is the right thing to call it. I don't want to get in trouble. But, uh, yeah. The, the overall way that they look at it. So I thought that was a really thoughtful reference that was in the game, and they, they do a lot of cool things with it. Yeah. Cool. That's, that's good to know from someone that grew up um, in, in that system. You know, you're, you're, in, you're looking at it from the inside, not the outside. Uh, honestly, I was uh, actually surprised that of the backlashes that this game created when it came out that the Catholic Church wasn't all up in there because they, they tend to throw a lot of shade even at stuff like like when the movie Kevin Smith's Dogma came out, they were all about it. So whenever they tend to approach Christian and religious imagery in a way that they're referencing, air quotes, the church, uh, it's interesting yeah. that there wasn't more backlash, especially because uh, one thing I liked about the the plot of this game is that the, the conflict between the light and the dark was imbalanced by the light getting humans to believe in God and to and to hunt down witches and they do they kind of they don't play into it because this is the the actual uh, narrative of the game is happening after that's already happened but i like that plot detail okay i i want to get i want to dig deep into that that plot and that that theme um so i i think one of the overarching themes the core theme of this game is just that like uh this idea of um sort of the balance between the traditional uh, moon and earth goddess and uh, the sky father, right? These, these are sort of the two pretty core concepts in religions throughout the world. 
And um, this is not my original thought. So many people have written about this. But the idea is like, uh, you know, early societies were more, um, if not matriarchal, then uh, at least like they they still like really venerated uh, goddess figures. And they were typically associated uh, with with the moon, right, Uh, for for various reasons. Um, uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the earliest artifacts made by by people are like uh, fertility goddess figures. Uh, A lot of people think, uh, you know, people used to assume they were sculpted by men. Now people think maybe they were sculpted by women like the uh, Venus of Willendorf. Um, somebody did a study a while ago where they're like, you know, the, the figure looks really distorted from far away, but if, if, uh, they, 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 there's a theory that it replicates what a woman sees when she's looking down at her own body. If you look at the figure from the top down, it, it replicates a, um, you know, like first person's perspective of like looking down at, uh, your own body if you're a woman, right? Yeah, that's, um, um, and it's also why they... They have hair, but they don't have a face because yeah, the yeah. sculptor can see their hair, but they don't see their face. Yes, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty. Um, one of the theories theory. is that um, that it seems to be like how a woman can just uh, like track her stages of pregnancy. Oh wow! Okay, pregnancy. I, I I'd also heard like because they find like notches on these things. I, I'd heard uh, it could be associated just with like. You know, menstrual cycles, which again, like, kind of correlate yeah. with uh, the lunar cycle, hence the you know lunar uh, moon goddess association. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although there are variants, like you know, like in European stuff, like you usually think what Apollo with the moon. Oh really? I thought he was all... the sun. Wait, wait, wait. Is he? Wait, is he the sun or? Yeah, Apollo is definitely the sun, right? Wait, isn't the moon mission the Apollo mission? Uh, Apollo is definitely the god of the sun. I've been wrong this whole time. Uh, Apollo <laughs> is uh, responsible for riding his chariot across uh, the sky, um, okay. pulling the sun uh, oh. into position. It's because I keep on thinking about Tom Hanks going to the moon. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a strong association. Yeah, yeah. That's modern <laughs> modern mythology in the making. They, the 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 moon father Tom Hanks, uh, on his Apollo chariot, it consciously plays into this. So so you know older older cultures had, uh, you know, uh, the 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 goddess, and then there was you know the concept of the sky father. Um, I, I think Andy, you, you you can elaborate on this much more than 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 I <laughs> I know about. But but basically like the sky father. Um, that concept is sort of like taken over over the last, uh, uh, you know, 2000 or so years. Um, that's sort of the basis of like the Abrahamic religions. And even before that, like the, uh, the Greek and Roman gods sort of with, um, Zeus as like the, the, the head figure. And then even before that, the, uh, the Vedic gods, right? Um, although with the Vedic gods, like, I think the moon god Chandra is male. Oh, really? Yeah, well, like, I mean, um, there are some flips, and there are also um, like some old mythologies of like I don't know if it was Apollo or one of the like Greek named gods was like a like a dual male female hermaphrodite super being, and then divided in half. Or Apollo was the one that divided the human into man and woman. It was mm. something I read in a Joseph Campbell book. 
Well, well, certainly the uh, the Vedic Vedic gods um, often uh, switched genders or had both or no gender, right? It just like I can't say for sure right now. Like I haven't looked it up in a while. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to it. Um, if, if you're listening, maybe <laughs> chime in on Twitter if you know, or, or, or keep yeah. an eye out. So anyways, yeah, the, the central theme of this game is very much sort of this uh, moon goddess versus sky father. And, um, you know, to, to Sean's point, it's, it's, the game is literally about, like, smashing the Judeo-Christian patriarchy. Like, all of the imagery, <laughs> you, like, 100% of the imagery is actually about that. Um, wh- whether or not you... Yeah want to call that feminist i mean I, I think that's pretty easily classified as a feminist message but uh, certainly the the imagery is there uh you, Richard, Bayonetta, uh, yeah. you, you read uh james joyce stuff right yeah what about james joyce i don't like uh wasn't that like one of the the first like kind of modern era books to like really go into like not so much challenging religion but like looking at it from a kind of personal and and not clean perspective. Um, yeah, so I, I, I read like uh, uh, Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a young man. Well, I only know it because uh, that mythology scholar, Joseph Campbell, who like was born in like 1905, he talked about James Joyce being such a big impact on him. Like, and he was uh, like raised very Catholic and he kind of had a falling out with his faith like after reading James Joyce. But one of his examples was um, there's like a scene where a James Joyce character is just like wandering around somewhere and just like sees a girl that was like washing her hands in a river. And it's like just this uh, natural feminine feminine beauty is something that uh, like he had not seen all of his life, like growing up ready to join the church. And then Bayonetta is, you know, this towering leggy smiling woman yeah yeah she i mean she's she's a witch so that's that's yeah. the plot of the game uh, she's a umbran witch so even you know the yeah. term umbra that that's associated with uh, the moon um yeah. and then the the plot of the game is um i think there there there's the umbrians and then what were like the 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 you know the sky father faction the 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 catholic church basically what were they called in the game lumen lumen sages lumen yeah like like luminary like light right yeah yeah very very solar imagery um they ended up uh getting seizing the power right like it was in balance and then they seized it and they started persecuting the witches right and they uh wanted all the power for themselves they threw everything out of balance right i believe yeah uh, yeah and that and that's like the a bit of a backing to sort of explain how witches were persecuted in reality, right? Like, it's like a bit of a nod Oh, so they tied it into real life. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they mentioned that the way that they, there was a war, right? But that the way that they threw it out, out of balance was by getting uh, humans to believe in God and by extension that to then hunt down and persecute witches as a, a reference to the darkness. And they uh, they even referenced the the different realms like Paradiso, Inferno, kind of, uh, you know, pur- Purgatorio and whatnot. And they referenced how those realms are not meant to interact with each other. And the light threw it out of balance by uh, pulling, pulling those realms together or invading 
and using the humans to move between it. They, they even reference this heavily when you start out the game. I, I forget the name of the town that you uh, start in, where they even talk about how it's closer to the light than it should be. Like, everything is meant to be in balance, not closer to the darkness or the light. You know, uh, this is also, like... Um, they had already made Okami, right? Bayonetta came afterwards? Yes. Yeah. Right, and then Okami is uh, the sun goddess Amaterasu. Yeah. So for this Japanese team, it's like very amusing to have a to go from like what they would be praying at, like at festivals, and like okay, now the sun is like this hyper sterile masculine figure, and now like uh, the female goddess doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Total opposite. Yeah. I wonder if like perhaps some part of making Okami led to Bayonetta. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it was the follow-up. Yeah, I, I would love to, you know, talk to the team about how one kind of flowed into the other. That, that would be fascinating. Yeah, and it's it's another, you know, uh, like Okami is it's a, a wolf, like a wild animal that is usually associated with, uh, like, evil because it is, like, unable to find God. Um, like, uh, Joseph Campbell goes into this a lot. And how, uh, like, his personal struggle with his faith was uh, the idea that he was being taught, oh, uh, nature is inherently sinful, and salvation can only come from this thing that is uh, above the earth and uh, above the human. But then, uh, okay, then Jesus is the uh, conduit from heaven to humanity, because he's both from the earth and not from the earth uh, but with joseph campbell he goes a lot into like okay um, like if nature is inherently sinful then uh you know an animal is sinful or like a carnal desire is sinful and these are the images that like uh platinum games and just the people who became platinum really like getting into dante really enjoys a delicious slice of pizza uh Bayonetta just loves walking around feeling sexy and okami is like a happy wolf and like the bayonetta enemies the lumen sages like the they're monsters they have faces but they don't look like a face that can eat and then bayonetta like she conjures mouths that like they don't look human but they do look like they really enjoy eating those angels yeah she's literally she's summoning demons from hell like with her yeah. hair as a conduit. Well, especially whenever you, you land uh, the kind of uh, finisher attacks and the the demon comes out that looks kind of like a dragon, it doesn't just kill something. It definitely, like, chews it and chomps it and definitely yeah, yeah. appears as though it's enjoying its meal. Yeah, it's very sensual. Very, very sensual in the literal sense of the word. Not just sexy, but, like, just, like, fulfilling uh, your, yeah, the senses. Wait, does that make... Bayonetta, the whore of Babylon that rides the multi-headed dragon beast of the apocalypse. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know, Sean. Do you have any insight I, there? I am not sure. I don't know if hey. that parallel is there, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Well, okay. like it doesn't have to be literal. That's another thing that Joseph Campbell talks about. Like uh, um, the way he grew up, it's like, oh, you have to prove the historic truth of like everything that you're writing about your religion. And then he was like part of the first generation of Americans to learn about like Buddhism and Hinduism. And he was surprised to find that like, oh, 
Like uh, they don't focus so much about like figuring out an exact date. But then, I mean, he didn't grow up in, in those religions either. So like he wouldn't have experienced the same like kind of pressures if he was born like uh, Hindu Indian or so. But um, that's one of the things he liked to, to point out. Um, taking things literally or just like enjoying it. Yeah, like um, just enjoying it for, for the art and the, the experience, right? Uh, one of the quotes he gave, um, it's not something he experienced, but he said he was like some kind of religious meeting in, in Tokyo or so where like like a Christian priest and a Shinto priest were chatting and the Christian priest was like, oh, uh, I've seen your your festivals and your dances and your shrines, but... I don't understand uh, what is the dogma behind the dancing and the festival. And then the uh, Shinto priest paused and goes, oh, um, we don't have dogma, we dance. <laughs> like, I'm sure like they actually have something, but um, like it was very different from what these like 1950s Americans were used to. Yeah, I think it's probably a little romanticized, but it still speaks to the, the, the yes. differences. Definitely yeah. romanticized, because then Campbell starts talking about the beautiful geishas. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, I, I want to get back to this idea of, um, uh, like, inherent sin, or, like, uh, you know, earthly things being sinful. Um, like, Sean, could, could you maybe elaborate on, on that, how, how that's taught? Sure. So there is a, a doctrine that is pretty central to... Christianity called original sin, which is effectively that uh, Adam and Eve's original sin to disobey God in paradise is passed down uh, through, gener through the generation. So effectively, when you are born, you are born with original sin. And uh, a lot of the central tenets of Christianity and Jesus' sacrifice was uh, effectively cleansing you of of that sin so everyone is inherently sinful you yeah. you face temptation you sin but it's not about it's not about not sinning it's about um it's about pushing back against temptation and then seeking forgiveness uh, and improvement for that sin so in general there is a major major theme throughout most most christianity that uh, humans are inherently sinful and that's what baptism is baptism cleanses you of original sin it's is uh, it like a symbolic second birth uh to to a degree yeah it's your birth into the church uh it's meant yeah. to be more of a like i said more of the cleansing of that specific sinful nature that's also why confession is uh, a major tenet uh, of catholicism uh is that uh you must you, you are you have sins you have uh you have faced temptation and you need to uh have a relationship with God in order to uh, then seek forgiveness for that. Uh, something pretty interesting, I think, is actually inherent in this game that I, I think is actually meant to reference that is if you notice with the the Lumen Sages versus the Witches, is that the Lumen Sages they even do this in one of the opening cutscenes. They're they're they don't really summon angels. They're very subservient. They almost must sacrifice themselves to summon them. They uh, they don't really have a, a relationship as much as they they have to glorify them. Whereas the witches make packs and deals with demons, uh, or they have sponsors. Uh, 
so the relationship between the light and its followers and the dark and its followers are actually very different power dynamics. Yeah, I I think the way Bayonetta does it is, it's kind of like, uh, Sean, you watch Futurama, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Remember (laughs) the the giant bender statue? Yes, remember me. Free us. (laughs) The Egyptian one. Free us from all independent thought and responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. Like, um, that's one of the, the benefits of being the Lumen Sages is they they just do these things and they don't feel bad because they believe, well, the responsibility is someone above me. Like, I'm just doing it and I'm not guilty. Like, they're avoiding uh, guilt and sin. Well, the witches, mm-hmm. if they do something, like, they uh, they have to own up to anything they do. Well, oh, and this is prevalent even in, uh, way back into things like uh, the Crusades or what, right? Like it, and it, it pervades into basically any Judeo-Christian religion, which is that you're, uh, you can kind of sacrifice against the the tenants in order for a in order for a chance at eternal life later. So you're right. There's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of personal accountability toward. Um, not not toward your own behavior, but toward a subservient behavior. Yeah, I'll have to read up more on that. So I um, just so going back to the character of Bayonetta and this concept of original sin. Um, basically, like you in 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 uh, Christianity or Catholicism, like you need the church to perform that service to absolve you of that sin, right? Correct. Sean? You you uh, yeah. So though it's interesting the the idea that there you have a personal relationship with God is a central tenet, yet you must use the church and its its clergy in order to directly interface with God. So it's a it's a strange dichotomy of that messaging, right? Yeah. Like even even things like adoration where the the host is exposed, where you can effectively sit uh, with with God is still something that must be facilitated by the church. Okay. So I, again I think um, the way that plays in into the the plot of this game is a uh, the character of Bayonetta, um, I, I think she discovers she's like uh, she's half Umbrin, half um, Lumen. So, so yep. her birth, uh, her very being is considered sinful, right? She's she's a, a pariah, um, but she owns it. So, so, so that sort of explains her her ostentatious uh, personality. She is she's a very unique character in that, like, yeah, she's like uh, you know. Very sexy, uh, um, very appealing to de- definitely to a lot of hetero dudes, but um, different from a lot of games. She's not the typical vixen. I, I would argue it's not just for the uh, you know what people love to call the male gaze. Like I think she owns um, her own sexuality. Like she, the character, uh, is having fun, flaunting you know her body and her abilities. Um, she attacks. Uh, with her hair, you know, like she attacks with every part of her body. She forms her image out of herself. She's not even wearing like clothing from anything else. She's every everything is like self-generated, yeah. um, you know. And through her, like we experience that exhilaration. Like we're we're not. She's not our plaything. Like we're actually supposed to feel empowered, like in her shoes, you know. And then sort of going going digging deeper into this connection of. Um, uh, sort of this, uh, the, the, you know, feminist moon goddess versus sky father theme, like the very ending of the game, 
they're trying to like summon God, right? <laughs> like, so there, there's literally yeah. like the patriarchy and the 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 father, the, the figurehead of the patriarchy, and she defeats him by summoning uh, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, you know, this this figure from uh, she's a biblical figure, right? I think yeah. she figures into the yes. Abrahamic belief, but she summons this goddess and punches the patriarchy into the sun. <laughs> like, I think um, that's some pretty bold, uh, pretty clear imagery there. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, think, can uh, you? Uh, go ahead. So I wanted to to add as well. Uh, it's it might be a bit of a stretch, but I actually think it's it's there. Which is what you're talking about is also evident in. The design and so at the beginning of the game when you're first starting out in the prologue she's actually wearing a nun's outfit and so oh, yeah. not nuns are considered yeah. married to the church they are not allowed yeah. to marry they are subservient and then she like it, she's literally fighting and bursts out of it into an opposite approach it isn't just the the nun's outfit is covering her and it, it's it's of course completely white so she literally <laughs> she literally just uh burst out of the the idea of uh the, the patriarchy in that particular uh, so i think that is why it starts out that way it's meant to be very clear yeah and she, yeah. And she fashions uh, her own appearance like out of her hair she she, she yeah. makes her own clothing well one other thing uh, i mentioned that the there is a difference between how the sages and the witches work and i actually think it's meant to be empowering as well which is that you know when you're when you're fighting and all the the hair stuff that's coming on the the demons like those are a reflection of uh, the pact that that she's made with I believe it's like they have like a sponsor that's the the so the the demon that's coming through uh, and being formed with her hair is actually the demon that she has made uh, a pact with uh, and but I, I think that idea is meant to be empowering like she's not subservient she's not married it is an equal relationship. They, they have made vows to each other, and it is an agreement, uh, which oh, to me wow. is an inherently much more balanced thing than a, you know, the, the nun thing where they're married to the church. They have to do certain specific things. Uh, they're not allowed to uh, make packs on their own. Like, there's a, a lot there, I think, that is meant to be referenced here. Wow. You know that philosopher Carl Jung? How yeah. How say his name? Jung? J-U-N-G. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He gave a lecture on uh, how the priests are married to Jesus, too. So it's a gay marriage. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That, like that is was... the general idea behind why priests can't get married. What? Wait, wait. But do they yeah, but it's, refer? It's, it is said married to the church, but it's the same difference. Nuns yeah. are called oh. the brides of Christ, though. Yeah, wait, like, wait. Uh... But they're both married to the church. Yes. Um, well, he's... Because he was digging into, like, these, like, old imagery and trying to figure out, you know, like, primal psychology and all these things. And uh, he said, like, ultimately, like, the goal of the Christian man is to get in touch with the woman inside him, of himself. And, like, when the priest is part of the church, then, like, the Christ is the woman in them. I don't know. I need to read this again. It was, his stuff is always, like very meaty and takes a while to digest wow that's that's fascinating yeah yeah it was in 1939 like a surprise like wow like so you could just say that and like no one's gonna go like beat them with sticks well i i had heard that the church wasn't always so um you know anti-homosexuality like 
Uh, well, I, okay, like, I don't think he actually said gay. I think he said he was, like, a transformation. Like, there is, like, some kind of spiritual gender change. Like, the kind of thing that Bayonetta is fighting for are the things that many Christian men in Europe got burned at the stake for doing, you know, saying, I can form a personal relationship with God. And, like, there were scientists who got burned at the stake for that, not because of saying stuff about science, but it was like saying stuff about Jesus. Oh, right. I think we had a conversation about this before. Like some of the uh, martyred scientists in modern, the modern interpretation was that they died for science. But when in actuality, their sin was saying that you could have a personal relationship with God outside of the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who was that that you were referencing? I want to say he was Italian. I I need to look it up again. Um, Maybe like Copernicus? Nah, he wasn't someone whose name I recognized immediately. But yeah, let's... Yeah, like, uh, Bayonetta's themes are all things that it's... it's. I think that's what makes it really nice, is it's not like, here is this, like, we're going to paint Christianity as, like, the foreign enemy, and our protagonist is outside of it. Like, the themes are all within, like, what I've read of people who are Christians who like talk about their experience or just this Joseph Campbell stuff. So, uh, Richmond, you you were asking about homosexuality in the church, and I did want to mention, I think it's worth knowing that it actually was very likely a reaction against Roman culture. Hmm. Because if you recall, the, the genesis of the Christian church is very much during the time when early Christians were, were persecuted. Uh, yeah. So even though... There is a there is some in there is a you know something in the scripture in the Bible. Uh, I think the the interesting thing about early Christian history is that it's much more driven by its historical uh, atmosphere than most people give it credit for. In terms of even you could even argue which key in even the imagery that comes up in this game is Revelations was debatably uh, John trying to get messaging out to followers that would make it through into Roman culture in a way that wouldn't be perceived as inciting violence or uh, carrying a a message. So I think there is a lot there in terms of, there isn't anything in, you know, inherently around the religion kind of stretches to make these things. So it was very early on pretty much designed to be an anti Roman behavior, less so, less so than like, so there was, I don't think there was ever a time when it was okay, but that, that is basically like right at the beginning when the church started, uh, that was very much a, an interesting dichotomy between uh, it existing, you know, underneath the, the iron rule of the Romans. Uh, kind of funny, because nowadays I occasionally see things that's uh, like, you know, new studies show Romans really were super hetero. Uh, yeah, that's probably not very accurate. (laughs) And even if you don't say Roman, like, you you can lump them in with Greek. Like, that general Mediterranean area, the time uh, around that in terms of... It is true that that homosexuality or that kind of behavior was much more acceptable. And, yeah, I feel like you're just trying to rewrite history if you don't accept that fact. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, right, guys. Um, Tying it back to Bayonetta, um, I I I also remember the character of Bayonetta um, pretty quickly kind of became like a like a modern um, like 
one of the few gay icons in video games. And I, I don't mean that like, oh, like she, the character is queer, but like, um, you know, like just, just a celebrated, uh, you know, uh, figure. Like I, I remember a lot of gay artists like really attached themselves to this character. Um, and I, I bring this up because I, I actually had a games journalist reach out to me for, for comment on that. I forget his name. Um, the article's not up anymore, but it was a dude writing for Edge. Uh, he he just wanted to talk about um, you know like wh- why why does this character appeal to uh, you know to like so many um, gay uh, queer lesbian LGBTQ uh, people um, and uh, I guess he reached out to me because he, he liked some of the writing I've done on on video games but um, I, I I thought it was just because uh, a couple things I, I think she just sort of had these qualities that made her um, uh, very appealing, uh, especially to anyone who grew up like gay in America, where um, you know it's still really not acceptable to a lot of people. Uh, but even like even 10 years ago, 2009, uh, I, I think even then um, there was much less discussion about this sort of thing uh, about, about different you know sexualities. So I think like just the fact that uh, th- this character, she she was so uh, self-assured, right? Like so so just out in the open with her own sexuality, right? And she even kind of like turned it into like a weapon. Um, she just completely owned it. Uh, just that confidence, I think, is um, uh, re- really appealing, right? And then on top of that, her whole storyline of uh, being a pariah. So again, like, you know, being called this abomination by the the, the equivalent of the church in this game. Uh, but then she just doesn't let that crush her. She just doesn't care. Like she... She does not let them bring her, you know, she brings the whole system down. So she she has this indomitable spirit, very, very positive. Um, and then I think even one more thing on top of that, um, there, there's there's a little girl character. Uh, uh, what was her name? Do you, do, do you guys remember? There's a little girl in the game that looks like Bayonetta. She thinks Bayonetta's her mom, right? Yeah, I don't remember off the top yeah. of my head, but yeah, there definitely is. Um, I, but so, so throughout most of the game, you think maybe you know she's an amnesiac, maybe this is your last daughter, and like uh, she begrudgingly, um, I think she has some some line like I, I don't like kids, I, I like making kids, I don't like kids, but she she reluctantly you know takes care of this kid, is kind of nurturing, protects her, and then you find out um, that's her. Like they somehow sent her forward in time. And she's protecting herself, and uh, I think in a way that's like that's like a real uh, wish fulfillment, right? Like especially I, I, I hear this especially amongst um, uh, uh, people who grew up um, not being able to to be themselves in in America or, or anywhere else where where you know people oppress minorities. Um, th- this is like this amazing fantasy of going back in time and telling yourself like you're going to be okay and you're going to grow up into this incredible person you know well, that's the yeah. the genesis of the it gets better uh campaign for yeah sure. yeah yeah oh that's nice yeah so i think uh, okay. all, all, all these qualities yep it's going into carl jung he says what uh the animus is the unconscious masculine side of a woman and the anima is the unconscious feminine side of a man so mm. Bayonetta is like the anima for these men, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, and then for the women, it's she is the animus, this striding powerfully and just like crushing things. 
So I, I don't know. I, I hope not too many people are rolling their eyes at us about all this, but I, I think it's a very strong character, and um, just she strikes this chord, and it's it's just very uh, very successfully primal, I think, and 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 her archetype is so easily uh, it's so clear, and it's so easily understood within all these different systems. So I, I think that's why we're able to talk about so many different things in reference to this character. Uh, whether they're explicitly uh, referenced or not. I think part of it is the characters, the heroes and villains in in between and Bayonetta, like their motivations are are personal and we see their feelings. We're not just seeing them like, you know, get like a scout badge for doing something. We see how they feel about something. Like even the Lumen Sages, you feel that uh, they have a peace of mind, not really... Uh, having any guilt for what they're doing because it's all according to plans that they've given their lives to. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they're not necessarily portrayed as sympathetic, but they're not like one note. You can you can see why they do what they do and what they're getting out yeah. of it, right? By the way, the, the Queen of Sheba character, like, um, I know in uh, European art, like, the Queen of Sheba is often portrayed as, like, black-skinned, like an African woman, and has to do with her being like a foreign queen. Yeah, yeah, there's the... like illuminated manuscripts of her. She's clearly like a, a black woman, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and a then, royal, wealthy, powerful yeah. figure. And then in Bayonetta, she has like a, but she's like black, like a, like a Hindu goddess, like painted, and with skulls in her hair, like Kali. There's... I think it's called what the Shakti. That's like the feminine energy and like the feminine, the female pantheon in Hinduism. And Kali is one of the major goddesses of that. And oh, she's cool. usually portrayed, you know, with lots of like dudes' heads hanging from her skirt. Yeah, and hands. Yeah. Chopping off hands too. Yeah. Uh, isn't she associated with like the end of things as well? Um, in the cosmic cycle. She is the consort of Shiva, so they're both the destroyer together. Yeah, right? Isn't there like a cosmic dance that they do together? Yeah, maybe. Well, I know there's statues of, of Shiva dancing. Up. Let me just really quickly interject. It's called yeah. the Nada Raja. It's, it is, uh, Shiva is the divine dancer, and I, I think he's often uh, depicted with his... Is he depicted with his consort? If he is, they're banging. I, I think that maybe that's a Buddhist depiction, actually. What? Oh, like esoteric Tibetan? Uh, yeah, yeah, esoteric uh, Tibetan stuff definitely <clears throat> has together. Well, all of this varies over time. Like, uh, imagery changes, and then imagery comes back, and then changes yeah. again. Yeah, I think that's another thing. Bayonetta is very much like a psychological scape. It's not like, the story is not like, like, hey, kids, you know, pick up a torch and go attack Christians. No, it's about like, this is the conflict inside of you. Yeah, it's personal. It's, it's, it's personally relatable. But it's also, it ties into just the stylishness, how it looks, how it moves. Yep. This is yeah. something we, we talked about last podcast, but I wanted to mention, this is another game that plays with the idea of... Uh, the good, the good or protagonist characters are uh, on the side of evil, air quotes, and they wear mostly black or darker clothing that is more uh, stylish and fashionable. 
and the all the antagonists and enemies are using the the kind of the the lights that you like I said the, the kind of the baroque Gregorian yeah. approach. Also, like most of the enemies are quite covered as well. There isn't a lot of exposure. They're all yeah. The the sages cover their faces. They have their hijab body thing. Oh, okay. Real quick, real quick. Going back into the imagery with Shiva. They right the the queen of Shiva looking like Shiva with her you know dark skin and the 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 black pitch black skin and the skulls. So Shiva uh, does a dance called the okay. So Shiva as Nataraja. Okay, Shiva does a dance called the Tandava, and it's a graceful and delicate dance, and it ex- expresses emotions on a gentle level, and is considered the feminine dance attributed to the goddess Parvati. There's another dance called the Kala Mahakala, which is associated with the destruction of the world. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, the figure is tied in with the destruction of the world, which is cyclical, right? It means ending ending something to, to, to start something new. There's a belief that like a lot of the Hindu gods are cycle like symbols of internal psychology. So it's also like a, a destruction and beginning of your your own period in life or self or so. All of that stuff that Jung gets into. Oh, then uh, just real quick, I think we, we can also, you know, obviously the game is about witches. You know, Bayonetta is is a witch, um, and in real life, you know, uh, there, there were the, the terrible uh, witch hunts in in Europe and in, in the Americas. Um, and I, I think a lot of people have gone back um, and studied these under, uh, I've heard modern scholars interpret it as um, uh, a lot of these women that were, were persecuted and killed, um, they were practicing old, like, pre-Christian uh, traditions still, like, uh, or, or, or rather, they, um, I, I, I've heard it presented as like they were, so there's like this association of witches and potions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I've heard it as like uh, uh, these, these women basically dared to go back to um, their own sort of just like indigenous practices and like indigenous folk medicine and stuff sort of out, out, outside of the church. And uh, because of that, you know, they were they were punished, you know, for holding on to the, the, the these these older customs, and for um, you know dispensing this knowledge. And uh, a lot a lot of it was just like a knowledge of like you know herbs and like local local medicines. Yeah, it was like survival foraging yeah. stuff. Yeah, and and there's very much a history of um, just sort of like a pre-feminist literature and um, uh, and writings about. Um, the witch hunts, uh, because I think uh, uh, well after they happened, people did start writing about them more uh, sympathetically, and uh, you know, like just from the uh, even yeah. before like uh, modern times, like uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, people were still like, "Wow, that was pretty awful <laughs> what happened." Yeah. And um, so, so a lot of like proto-feminist literature um, is directly tied into uh, writings about uh, witches, you know, real real life. Also, like, the hunts for, like, satanic magic, I've read uh, some of them were actually to, to catch people who were, like, debasing currency. Like, their their evil demon magic was to make fake money and then use it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but then that also meant, like, hiding some of the, like, actual, you know, technology of how to 
meant things from common people. So again, it was about people who persecuting people who posed a threat to um, yeah the the system of rule. You, you could even see the uh, and I'm gonna make quite a stretch here to tie it back into the game, but I actually think that the the parallel is there. Uh, so if you recall. Uh, in the the Bible, the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is very much. Uh, it's usually mentioned along with things like you know, obviously sodomy yeah. and homosexuality, but it's very much about a city that is completely materialistic. You know, is very interested in, uh, you know, the the kind of the pleasures of humanity. It's meant to be a, a lesson uh, about uh, not prioritizing those things, not prioritizing material wealth and and yeah. uh, humanly pleasure. And uh, one thing that is interesting about Bayonetta is one of the more common demons that she summons, the one that you actually see pretty often in the game, is Gomorrah. Was this also, I know like in the manga One Piece, Sodom and Gomorrah are two sea serpents that one of the pirate crews use. So I wonder if that chapter had already come out in One Piece at this time. <laughs> Not sure. I mean, One Piece has run for so long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're just very striking names. It comes up in a lot. Um, oh, by the way, the, the book I was just uh, uh, talking about earlier about um, that, that sort of um, established our modern perception of uh, witches, uh, it was a book um, published in 1862 in French called Satanism and Witchcraft. Uh, that's the English title. It was originally called La Sorcier. I, I cannot pronounce French. I'm so sorry to any of our French listeners. Um, but yeah, it was written by an uh, author named Jules Michelet. And uh, this person attempted to document the uh, practices and rituals of, of witchcraft um, in Europe. Uh, he, he was looking back in time, even, even in the 1800s when he wrote it. Um, and then the book is considered uh, prescient of like a modern... Um, feminism and, and other social movements because it had a very sympathetic view of the people who pra practiced witchcraft um, uh, because they tended to be uh, poor um, or just, you know, being women back then. So it was very sympathetic to women uh, and the poor and just people who, uh, you know, existed on the fringes of society who, who were persecuted by, by the establishment. Um, yeah, the, this, the author's interpretation of witchcraft was that it was a uh, a way to rebel against uh, feudalism and just the, the, the power of the, the Catholic Church. Very relevant. <laughs> Very relevant to Bayonetta and everything we've been discussing. Oh, man. Okay, that, that was um, a lot a lot that we just covered on, on Bayonetta. Um, any, any, any other thoughts on the game? Um, I have some comments a little bit about the gameplay as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, go into it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, one thing that is pretty important about Bayonetta is there is a mechanic in the game called Witch Time. Um, yeah. And you may just see it as um, an, a common kind of bullet time type mechanic, but what to me is really important about the mechanics used in the game is that it's not just a thing that you hit a button and trigger. You, you need to, in fact... Uh, barely dodge something at the last moment to then activate it. So it's one of those things where it is part of the core gameplay loop of in terms of once you start getting better at managing combos and, and juggles and when to use your weapon, uh, especially larger, uh, some of the larger bosses where you're not, you know, 
where you have a lot of ads coming in and you're also moving around them to get to their weak spot. The the kind of advent of, of the use of which time I think uh, was one of the more brilliant early on uses of uh, the mechanic. Because I think uh, we, were, we were talking before the podcast that it may have been introduced uh, bullet time as a concept in games, primarily in Max Payne. I think there was a couple other games like that kind of poked at it before, like Unreal or MK2 or something. But ultimately, yeah. um, this is this is one of those things where it's the, the first time that I can remember where it is such a a core part of how you play the game and it's not really there it's not there to make it easier yeah it's uh, really enjoyable like i mean near automata is popular today and it's uh, their dodging is like exactly you know bayonetta's which time uh, yeah, I, i'll just add that um uh, beautiful joe which i think was also directed by kamiya um, that that also played with with time you know slowing down time speeding up time um, but that, not quite like Bayonetta, like the way that it tied it into uh, this risk versus reward system. Um, it, this, in, in, as it was um, implemented in Bayonetta, almost felt more like like parrying in a fighting game, right? Speaking of like early, like things that are like Witch Time, there's also just uh, like playing a 90s or 80s arcade game, and when there's so many enemies on screen, everything slows down. Uh, yeah. like, like when you're in the last stage of metal slug and just slowly jumping over like 10 different bullets yeah yeah the slowdown uh is such a, a core part of so many um you know sprite based games it's uh yeah it, it would often help you stay alive right yeah and then um yeah. the the idea of like dodging as close as you can that's a a core toho mechanic and that's the shooting game where you play as, you know, uh, like a flying witch girl. I wanted to add for our listeners, if you have not played Bayonetta, you can dodge normally. And what we're talking about is then you are rewarded if you dodge at the very last second, you activate a slowdown mode called Witch Time. That I, I believe uh, is, is something that you, uh, it lasts for a specific amount of time, but based on how many dodges you have done, uh, it lasts longer. So anyway, sorry, go ahead. I just wanted everyone to be aware of that. I realized we yeah. didn't actually talk about and, <laughs> what it was. Yeah. This is also a, uh, a very popular concept in uh, Japanese martial arts. It's called uh, Zanshin. It is mindfulness after your attack. So you're always ready to defend or like counterattack immediately after an attack. Just doing kendo, it's like, okay, you attack. But even if you hit your opponent, you must be able to, you know, defend yourself. That's like a common thing in like the culture of Japanese combat sports and martial arts. When you read about like uh, athletes like being in the zone, they do talk about like everything does slow down or everything is just perfectly clear and they know exactly what to do. And that's kind of uh, like what Zanshin mindfulness. I think it's mindfulness. I'm not remembering the name of it, but there's also a, a Japanese concept about bringing your whole self to battle uh, in terms of isolating isolating yourself and the the general idea that uh, going to battle like distracted or thinking of other things doesn't actually benefit you. Uh, you yeah. need to isolate yourself into the moment. And I, I forget, there, there's a name for the concept. I'm just blanking on the name. It's very similar. Uh... Yeah, I know. There's things like like uh, pressure. Yeah, I'm sure 
could probably look it up later. Have Have you ever experienced uh, witch time uh, while while practicing uh, sword fighting? Kind of like I don't know, like last kendo practice I went to, I like uh, what Sean was talking about, like uh, just not like bringing your whole self there, like uh, you know, just fencing lightly with people much more skilled than me, but. I managed to like almost get a good hit when their advice was, you know, just uh, more pressure, like uh, kind of like just it's not just like, oh, like be more aggressive or attack more. It's just throw yourself into that attack. And I guess like just starting, you would think, oh, you know, I should be cautious or like take uh, half measures to, you know, be cautious. But it's actually in a way safer to, to go all the way in because if your structure is good then like your attack is also your defense. It sounds like you know like you, you got to commit to it right commit to it wholly. Yeah it's uh it's not martial arts but uh this is actually something I was thinking about a lot I've recently been scuba diving a lot and this is uh it, it, it maybe is kind of the reference to the, the relativism of time when your, your life is on the line. So scuba diving requires you to manage breathing and a number of other things to keep yourself alive. And I wonder if this is the, the same thing. It's not, you don't have a choice but to throw yourself into it. And the reason I thought of it based on what Andy was saying is you really don't, you're not, your mind does not wander uh, really when you're, you're diving. You, uh, you might enjoy what you're looking at in front of you, but you have to manage your breathing. You're, you have to pay attention to your air. You have to watch for your buddy around you. Like it's a very isol it's like a very isolated in the moment experience, and I wonder if that the kind of idea of of the bullet time or the the witch timer is represented by the adrenaline of barely barely getting hit, like yeah. isolates you into this moment. You, your mind can't wander. You must attack. You you have full control of the moment. Yeah, Sean, I remember you telling me that. Um, I think you uh, one one of your earlier experiences uh, diving like. You know, you you felt like it was just like five minutes. You're like, oh, that's it. We're like, we're going back up. And then, like, how much time had actually passed? Yeah, it was something like 30 minutes had passed, but it felt about five. Yeah. That's that's incredible. That's sort of the opposite of which time, right? Like, you're you're so so in the moment that you, it's um, time passes faster. <laughs> yeah. I I think it's the same the same general concept, which but is yeah, that, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess you're right. It is. It uh, it it actually. Well, it feels slow, to be honest with you. Well, sorry, you're very in the moment, so it doesn't feel like uh, things are going by slowly or, or, or quick, uh, quickly, right? It's just uh, you're so engaged in it that you don't notice uh, the relativism of time, if that makes sense. I, I think it's only looking back on what just transpired, right? Maybe it's you have a goal and you're heading towards it. Because usually when time is slow is like you become not knowing where your goal is or you're looking for your goal or you found it, but it's going to take another 10 minutes. But yeah, certainly time is relative. I mean, it's it's in terms of experience, right? It's, it's a constant, constant, more or less mathematically, scientifically. But like, I think we've all had experiences where time uh, feels like it's passing faster or, or slower, you know? I uh, also, to go back more to the mechanics of this, but I thought it was interesting, there are parts in Bayonetta as well where you use the, you basically use witch time so that you can traverse things like water that you normally wouldn't be able to do. And I kind of, I like the idea of, you can't, you don't just activate witch time and run across water. 
You yeah. actually have things attack you, then you dodge them to activate witch time, and then you use that to run across water. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a game that knows it's a game to be a game story. But yeah, I, I, I like the idea of, like, I'm not just hitting a button. It's kind of like a, come on, hit me, and then, like, dodging yeah. it to be like, oh, yeah, I got the witch time. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's just really beautiful how um, the systems come together in this game. Uh, and I wanted to, to go back to one that I, I briefly mentioned it earlier on, but it's another thing that uh, I think is really, really well done. So, obviously, one of the mechanics as part of the game is you have a number of attack moves, but you can also shoot one of your four guns depending on where you are. And uh, there's a movement that you make where you actually, again, on PlayStation, I don't know how it reflects on Xbox, but you actually have to do a 360 move in a, and then activate your, your firing. And it actually like zooms in close to Bayonetta. And it gives you a, a kind of a over her shoulder from behind uh, look. And it allows you to kind of aim more specifically at what you're shooting at. And then you can, you can kind of pull it back out by... Uh, reactivating it so they do a lot to play with not just targeting and juggling but your, your kind of ability to manage the sizes of enemies is actually really really thoughtful because uh, like there are some things that would be pretty hard to combo because they're so small um, and so that's also one of the ways where they they manage a large variety of enemy sizes without it feeling uh, contrived like they don't have to they can all have them kind of exist in the same space yeah that that is a really sophisticated level of uh game design another thing that i wanted to mention that i actually think is intentionally playing into the feminist themes but and again a bit of a stretch but uh, one of the other mechanics is you can pick up weapons uh from enemies that you down and there's a number of them uh i think early on in the game you defeat one where it has like a giant it's not a scythe, but it's like it's basically like a, a hammer-looking thing. And a number of those weapons, uh, when Bayonetta uses them, she has attacks that are like she effectively treats it like a dancing pole, uh, except it's yeah. a very deadly attack. <laughs> so <laughs> she uses her enemy's weapon uh, in in a way that would normally be uh, referencing her sexualism, that is not sexy at all, and is in fact one of the more powerful attacks uh, for that weapon. In 2009, was there, like, pole dancing, aerobics, yoga? Uh, yeah, it's, it's trending now, too. Um, okay. I think that there was that lady that, like, took a spill and she had, like, a GoFundMe and stuff. Um, I, I know, it was, I, I remember hearing from someone that it was, it was popular in Japan, too, just, to, like, for, for fitness. Yeah, it was certainly trendy in the U.S. for a little bit. So I do wonder, like, how much of the... I mean, well, of course, like... The developers making this game, they put themselves in it. So I do wonder, like, what are their personal experiences? Like, did one of them actually pole dance before? Or know someone that pole dances or watched a pole dance? Yeah, you could ask Kamiya. Be like, hey, man, have you done uh, pole yeah, dancing yeah. classes? I, I, I can't ask him because I've, I've been blocked. <laughs> yeah. Like so many others. Uh, I'll get into that later. Maybe in a future yeah. podcast. I'll, oh, yeah. um, I'll regale you all he, with this sad tale of how I got blocked by Camille. He, he is well known for his Twitter spiciness in your defense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I still uh, admire and respect him as a game designer. He's, he's uh... Just not as a human. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Ianetta. So, so um, we were talking about the, the, the use of time in this game, right? How, how it plays with time makes it relative. 
Hello, this is uh, Sean from The Editing Room. Uh, this is about the point in the podcast where we start switching to talk about Vanquish. And actually, there's about another hour and a half worth of content. So we decided to actually cut it into two separate episodes. There's a little bit more banter, uh, talking about Bayonetta and kind of ending up here. But uh, please join us next week. Uh, we will be releasing uh, basically another uh, entire episode's worth of discussion about uh, Vanquish. And I hope you enjoyed our talks about Bayonetta. See you next week. I wanted to add one more thing, and I actually realized uh, it's not really about the mechanics or the art. I, I uh, have been, since I purchased this bundle, I've been playing a lot of Bayonetta, and I realized there's something that's in Bayonetta that I really miss from games now. So most games nowadays are very, like, always on, and Bayonetta has very clear, defined stages. Uh, and I realized, as someone that has much less time to play games than I used to, it was very easy for me to play through a section of Bayonetta, get like a cool score, show me like what medals I got based on that, and then like save and just stop. Um, and I, I realized this this whole idea that the the game is it's got a narrative, but it's split out by very contained sections that you could, that are designed to be replayed and are designed for you to get better at, but were generally very digestible chunks of the game. Uh, games don't tend to do that as much anymore. They always, they're just kind of interested in keeping you in in the loop and uh they don't give you a lot of good stopping points so i just appreciated that yeah yeah um you you know what that tells me is like uh just sort of the game criticism is uh, very the way it's evolved over time is very much tied to what phase of uh life people have been and and i think a lot of game critics are probably our, our generation like older uh millennials so you know what that tells me is like 2010 um, people didn't necessarily appreciate that aspect of, of, of Bayonetta, right? Because uh, at the time, everyone wanted big, open, unending games, like like what you're describing, because, you know, they were in their early 20s. Like, they weren't married. They, they wanted to be immersed in these worlds. They hadn't started a family yet, right? This reminds me of whenever I talk to anybody uh, on different sides of the spectrum having played World of Warcraft, a game yeah. that if you're really into it and have been playing a lot of it, you can get bored at the end where there's not like enough content. But coming mm -hmm. in as a new player, it is the most overwhelming set of systems to learn and get into. Yeah. Mm. Oh man, like you gotta get into Fall Fantasy XIV again because uh, they do these things that are they make the end game even when you've beaten everything like enjoyable with things like some of the NPCs that you've quested with in a long story arc will just be in different parts of the world, like not in a set pattern and just show up because they're Ooh. like part of the living world now. And uh, just their current quest lines are just very nicely paced with times for rest. Very cool. Yeah, I need to get back into Final Fantasy XIV. But unfortunately, now I'm just playing Bayonetta and Vanquish. So. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great use of time. Yeah. Uh, you can play many, many games instead of playing one MMO for 500 hours. Uh, this podcast was, was not brought to you by Fanta. Fanta of Thailand just introduced the WTF flavor, mystery flavor. Uh, it stands for What the Fruit. It is a um, jet black soda. Like it, It's actually, you pour it out, it's black in color, and it's a mystery soda fruit flavor and you're supposed to like just guess what drink it is it's a really funny really creative campaign yeah so uh what what the fruit 
I thank um, to our, I don't know, our handful of listeners from Thailand. Uh, try it out. It's just pretty good stuff. Right. And also, um, uh, before we sign out, I, I just want to recommend some additional reading. Um, if, if you've enjoyed our talk on Bayonetta and on Vanquish, um, uh, first, I want to give thanks to, uh, there's a blog called Obligatory Spider Queen. Um, I, I recommend if you Google Obligatory Spider Queen and Bayonetta, uh, this is a blog, uh, this, this uh, anonymous woman who worked in games. She doesn't list her name or anything. She just wanted to remain anonymous. But um, yeah, she kept up a blog about her thoughts on um, you know, games from like uh, her uh, the perspective of a woman who's been playing games her whole life and also participating in making them. And she wrote a great article about, um, you know, the, the, the moon goddess imagery and the, the, uh, the sky father um, stuff that I referenced a lot in this talk and that we, we elaborated on in this talk. But um, yeah, please check out her blog. Um, and then you can also um, go to the Platinum Games uh, official website. They also keep up a really good blog. Uh, yeah, there's great interviews there with the staff on um, Bayonetta and Vanquish. Um, you know, lots of interviews with Kamiya. Really good interviews with uh, Marie Shimazaki on her design process. Uh, she has a really good one getting into um, just her inspirations and process for designing Bayonetta in the first game and uh, returning, you know, to design, redesigner in, in the second game. Um, and you can follow Marie Shimazaki on, on Twitter at Marie Shimazaki, just her name. That's M-A-R-I-S-H-I-M-A-Z-A-K-I. Um, yeah, she's super talented artist. Um, please be polite <laughs> if you follow her and message her. And uh, you can follow our podcast at Art Eater Podcast. Um, so yeah, uh, please. Uh, wow, this is our sixth one. Um, how, how, how many subscribers do we have now, Sean? Uh Almost 700, I think. I haven't checked. Almost 700. Wow. That's great. Yeah, thank you, everyone who's been listening. Thanks for uh, spending your your day with us. And, um, uh, yeah, please let us know how we're doing. Just um, if, if, if you have a Twitter account, uh, please hop on and, um, you know, let us know how we're doing. Let us know your thoughts on what we've been discussing. Um, maybe let us know stuff you want us to talk about in the future. We'll we'll you know, square that away in the memory banks. Uh, more likely than not, we're just going to keep talking about whatever the hell <laughs> we want to talk about. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're open to uh, suggestions. So, yeah, thank, thanks, everyone, for listening. And um, as always, thank, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Andy, for, for uh, being such great dudes to hang out with. This, this is really fun. I always look forward to this. Agreed. Okay.